If you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do, join me in turning to the book of Revelation chapter number 2. Revelation chapter 2, we'll consider together verses 1 through 7, Jesus' address to the church at Ephesus. The Bible that you hold in your hands and you find yourself turning pages in, even at this moment, is the inspired and infallible and inerrant Word of God. God has inspired prophets and apostles to record for us under the inspiration of His Holy Spirit the very Bibles we hold in our hands, at least English renderings of those Greek and Hebrew autographs. However, the chapter breaks, the chapter numbers, and the verse numbers in the Bible you hold in your hands are not inspired, infallible, and inerrant, but represent later insertions to help us in navigating the 66 books of the Bible. Now, I'm not saying to you that chapter breaks and chapter numbers and verses are bad, but I am suggesting this morning that they have a tendency to influence the way we read and interpret certain passages of Scripture. For instance, Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira sell a piece of property. And they bring the proceeds from the sale of that property to the apostles. And they claim to be giving 100% of the proceeds of that property sale into the care and trust of the church. The problem is... They were not giving 100% of the proceeds of that sale. And the result of their lying to the Holy Spirit, as Luke accounts for their actions in Acts 5, is that they eventually fall dead at the feet of the apostles. Now, they weren't compelled to do that, and we could delve into the teaching of that passage, but that's, that's a conversation for another day. What is often missed in that passage is what's happening at the close of Acts chapter 4 where a man named Joseph by birth is given the title son of encouragement or Barnabas by the apostles because he sold a piece of property and gave it into the care of the apostles for the well-being of the church and for the advancement of the kingdom. What Ananias and Sapphira are doing in Acts chapter 5 is trying to make a name for themselves, even as Barnabas had made a name for himself in Acts chapter 5. But in all of the treatments of that passage, I have never seen or heard those connections made between Acts 4 and 5. It's just an example of a chapter break that disrupts our ability to draw healthy connections between one passage and a passage that follows. Now, in all the books of the Bible, I know of no other book that has suffered as much violence and interpretation as the book of Revelation when it comes to chapter breaks, chapter numbers, and verse numbers. There is a tendency to treat chapters 1 through 3 as a unit all its own with this false separation between chapters 3 and chapter 4, and even a tendency to divorce chapter 1 from what we find in chapters 2 and 3. This is the continuation of what is being said in chapter 1. The vision being received by the Apostle John in chapter 1 is being continued now into chapters 2 and 3. In fact, there's a verse we didn't give much time or attention to in last week's text. Verse 19 of chapter 1 says, Therefore, write what you've seen, what is, and what will take place after this. Now, 
What John is saying there, and we can know this because of the verb tenses he uses in making the statement, that he's not saying this is about the past and the present and the future. I want you to write, Jesus says to John, about what you've already seen in the vision, what you are seeing in the vision, and what you will see in the vision. So what we find in chapters 2 and 3 is a continuation of that inaugural vision in chapter 1. The filling out of that vision specific to each individual church for the well-being of all of the seven churches of Asia Minor and ultimately, timelessly, generation by generation for churches of every era. Era, rather. Now, a, a second note. The, the treatment of Revelation 1 through 3, specifically chapters 2 and 3, in the past 100 years of American Christianity has been to treat these churches as though they represent ages in the history of the church. The problem with that is that they don't represent ages in the history of the church. Nor does the text give us any license whatsoever to interpret these specific letters to churches in that way. In fact, it's clear that every letter to every specific church is for the benefit of all of those churches. And the reason this seems to prosper in the Western church, specifically in America, is because it's sort of tailored to Western perspectives. For instance, when treating Revelation 2 and 3 as though it represents these church ages, one often points to the seventh and final specific letter in chapter 3, to the church of Laodicea. That church is referred to there as a lukewarm church. And for their lukewarmness, Jesus said, I would spit you out of my mouth. Lukewarmness or hypocrisy is literally the sin that makes Jesus sick. And that's how we'll reference that particular part of Revelation 3 when we land there weeks from now. And it's easy to look around Western church culture and say, well, this is the era of lukewarmness. This is the era of hypocrisy. The problem with that is that it assumes that the North American continent is the hub of Christianity, when in reality, Christianity is fairly evenly dispersed among the continents. In fact, if you ask me my personal opinion, I would say to you that Asia and parts of Africa are the places in the world today when the gospel is truly moving forward in leaps and bounds and people are bearing faithful witness to the truth of Christ's lordship, even in the face of great opposition. If you remove yourself from this Western-centered focus, the whole paradigm just falls apart. Now, that's a practical reason why this church age theory is untenable. But the most important reason is that the Bible does not give us license nor encourage us to interpret these parts of Revelation in that way. So I want to dispel some of our misunderstandings in terms of how we approach Revelation 2 and 3 before we jump in. Now, with that in view, I want to call your attention to the text itself. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. And if you found your way there, I'd like to invite you to join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Revelation 2, verse 1. Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven gold lampstands, says, I know your works. Your labor and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil. 
You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you've found them to be liars. You also possess endurance and have tolerated many things because of my name and haven't grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in God's paradise or in God's garden. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Call of the passage, the invitation of the passage is that we would return to our first love. Remember how far you've fallen. Repent. Do the works you did at first. Now I would point your attention to other arenas of life where first love has a tendency to be lost. Think of the wedding ceremony for just a moment. One of the sweetest moments in the wedding ceremony is missed by almost everyone except me or except the pastor. It's that moment in the service when the bridal party has taken its place. Everyone is in their position. The procession has taken place. Only the bride is left to process. And there's a change of music, usually away from one thing to canon in D. And everyone turns in the auditorium and they look toward those back doors and at last they swing open and there stands the bride in all of her bridal glory, father at her side. And the sweet moment is the look that comes across the face of her groom. Now I'm not usually the touchy-feely type, right? It's just not me. But I got to tell you, it's pretty sweet. And, and I've, I've even come to a place of encouraging people within the congregation. When the, when the music changes and the doors open, before you fix your undivided attention on the bride and her processional, just watch his face for a moment. It's a sweet, sweet moment in the service. Usually he'll cry a little bit. He'll try to get all dried up before everyone turns around and realizes that he's sobbing there at the altar. It's sweet. So let me ask you this, what happens between the altar and such sweet affection and the attorney's office across the conference table where the divorce papers are being signed? What, what happens in the in-between? There are other areas of life where we experience this kind of drift. What, what, what happens in the moments between getting the job you've always wanted and burning out in the end? For most of you here this morning, if you think back across the last five or 10 years, most of you are in the very place you had prayed to God he would allow you to be just five years ago. And yet there is this continual sense of dissatisfaction with where you are. So what happens in the in-between? What John describes, what Jesus rather describes, and John records in Revelation chapter 2 is the reality that this kind of drift can be suffered in our relationship with Jesus. There are some of you, I suspect even many of you, who have lost your first love for Jesus. You had that moment at the altar that was sweet and precious with 
eyes welling with tears and hearts bursting with affection. But somewhere along the way, you've suffered drift. It's just not what it used to be for you. I can tell you how you get from the altar to the attorney's office, one step at a time. Resisting the convicting work of God's Holy Spirit, suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness, quenching the work of God's Spirit as He provides correction and rebuke in your spirit, and pressing headlong into the sin, as innocent or as neutral as it may seem in the moment, quenching the work of God's Spirit and continuing to press into the very anxieties of life that burden and block your mind from being able to rightly behold the glory and the splendor and the beauty of our Savior, Jesus. Somewhat happens between the altar and the attorney's office is just life. It's not that you're off chasing things that are on their face morally impure, overtly evil. You're just living And their responsibilities and obligations and often attending anxieties and cares that come along with those burdens. The focus of your thought, your mind is forever fixed on those things. The anxieties, the cares, the responsibilities, the obligations and what we might call the burdens of life. So much so that you're not inclined to behold Jesus the way you might once have. So your fixation is on the stuff of this world. And that fixation will always imperil your soul. But if you'll fix your gaze on Jesus, you'll you'll find there is no room, there is no margin for forgetfulness when it comes to beholding or remembering his great goodness in glory. And I want you to see as we look through this passage what a critical foundational issue this really is. Think of all the things the church at Ephesus has going for them. Verse 1 begins, write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Just the name Ephesus itself calls to memory all of the blessed benefits and the rich tradition of being a part of the Ephesian church. It's one of the few churches in the ancient church that had a letter assigned its name, the letter of Ephesians. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. It's a church started by the Apostle Paul. Paul comes and preaches in the city of Ephesus with such power. It impacts the local economy. An economy driven by the silver trade and the building of idols. Paul had entered into that context and invited them away from their idolatry to worship God who is spirit, in spirit and in truth. And the impact of that message in the city of Ephesus was that it nearly brought their economy to a halt. It was the silversmiths that ultimately ran Paul out of town. He had so hampered their economy and the local local silver trade. Paul had served there, but so too had John, the beloved disciple, friend of Jesus who once leaned upon his breast in the hours before his death. The one who loved tirelessly Jesus had come and established himself in that city. John is referred to by the early church fathers as the Bishop of Ephesus. John writes the Gospel of John. John writes the book of Revelation. And most believe that John writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John specifically to the churches of the region of Ephesus. Encouraging them and exhorting them that they would persevere in the faith and resist false teaching. The city is in a privileged place. 
Not only was John there, but you might remember that one of the things Jesus said from the cross was, Son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. Entrusting the care of Mary, the mother of Jesus, to John the apostle. In all likelihood, and it is believed, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, would have been a participant in the church at Ephesus under the care of the apostle John. My hypothesis for years has been that Luke has the insight he has into the birth narrative of Jesus specifically because he was in proximity to Mary, the mother of Jesus, during his time in the city of Ephesus, ministering alongside the Apostle Paul. Think of the influence and rich tradition of this church. We've not even gotten to the idea that Timothy is there, established as a young elder and leading in the church. In the span of less than 60 years, this church has a richer tradition than virtually any church in the history of Christendom with now 2,000 years of history behind us. Jesus writes to them and speaks to them as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven gold lampstands. It's a note to the church at Ephesus that Jesus is not only tenderly caring for their needs, but that his eye is on the church in Ephesus. He walks in their midst. Paul was among you. John was among you. Timothy has been among you. Jesus might say, my mama attended your church, but I want you to know that I am in your midst. Bigger and more important than Paul and John and Timothy and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Jesus was there in the midst of that church. It says in verse 2, I know your works, your labor, your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you've found them to be liars. You also possess endurance and have tolerated many things because of my name and have not grown weary. Full count of all of the positives that Jesus assigns to the church at Ephesus is nine good works. He says, I know your works. You're doing good stuff. You're doing, in many ways, the works I've assigned you to do. You're doing good deeds. He says, I know your labor. In other words, there's a measure of intensity about the works to which they're performing. They're not just going through some motions. They're performing these works with some degree of intensity. They're laboring hard under the duty they've received from Jesus in fulfilling the mission of the church. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance. You've not quit, although there have been numerous opportunities to off-ramp. You have persevered in work and in labor. And I know that you cannot tolerate evil. You know, one of the signs of righteousness is not just that you adore what is good, virtuous, and noble, but that you despise that which is evil, unrighteous, and wrong in all the world. Jesus assigns that to the church at Ephesus. You got works, you got labor, you got endurance. You can't tolerate what is evil. You hate evil. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you've found them to be liars. Looking at this list, if you came to me after church today and said, Pastor Wade, I'm going to be moving to a new community. What are some things I ought to be looking for in a local church? As we make a decision about where we're going to move our church membership and the local church with whom we're going to join ourselves for kingdom advancement, I would say, look for these things. 
not the least of which is the ability to, to test the spirits. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. When I see someone in a pulpit or when I hear of a preaching or teaching ministry that is void of any gospel whatsoever, my first thought is not woe unto him, although that clearly registers with me. My first thought is, what in the world are all of those people thinking, sitting under such a ministry? Is there no discerning soul in the congregation to say something is amiss with the message? And it's usually subtle. I'll concede that. It's the subtle exaltation of self over Jesus. It's, it's, it's really the truth that most of American Christianity is little more than 30-minute segments, if that, on personal will and self-help with very little emphasis whatsoever on Jesus. Perhaps he's tagged in the end or some veiled reference to the Bible is mentioned along the way, some verse out of context. But much of what you see paraded as Christianity in our culture is absent of any real gospel presence. Can no one see this? Is there no discernment? But Jesus says the church at Ephesus, they've got it. Probably because they've been discipled well in this particular area. John had written to them in 1 John chapter 5, you are to test the spirits and determine those which are good for the edification of the church. Those that have lashed themselves to the message that Jesus Christ is the only begotten son of God who bled and died in our place and rose again the third day. Any deviation from this message, John says, is an indication that something is amiss with the spirit. My worry about so many churches that have drifted from the gospel is not that there's nothing spiritual happening in their midst. My concern is that it's just of a spirit that isn't of God. Surely it's spiritual. There's an element of the spiritual about virtually everything that is done. And given the deep emotion and affection that seems to be demonstrated in so many of those gospel void contexts, surely there's something spiritual. It just may not be of the Holy Spirit of God. But the church at Ephesus had it figured out. They had good discernment. John goes on to say in verse 3, You possess endurance and have tolerated many things because of my name and have not grown weary. Like what is so often the case in our culture, we act foolishly, we get the consequences, and then we blame it on following Jesus. They had actually tolerated persecution because of their commitment to Jesus. There's no qualification. There's no caveat here. You have tolerated much because of my name. Listen, it's good what they've done. But Jesus changes the entire tone and tenor of this text. The single word in verse number four. But, he says, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. You don't feel the way you used to feel for me. And, and unless you count this as a lesser sin or of little significance, I would have you to note that Jesus would warn them that if you don't remember, repent, and do the works you did at first, I will come to you and I will remove the lampstand from your midst. The two fears I had this week in looking over this passage and preparing for this message. One, that you would count this as a sin of little importance or little significance. But Jesus says, if you miss the mark here, I will remove my presence. Take the lampstand from the midst of the church. 
You think about the symbolism that was defined for us in Revelation chapter 1. The lampstand represents the church. But we're back to this business of a, a, a matter of flexibility within apocalyptic imagery. The lampstand represents the church, but Jesus says, I'm going to remove the lampstand from the church. In Revelation 2, the lampstand stands for the presence of Jesus. It turns out there's not that much flexibility in its application here. When you think about it in these terms, what makes the church the church is the presence of Jesus among us. When the lampstand is removed, it's no more than a gathering of people. No different than a Friday night high school football game or a concert gathering or just a bunch of people in line at Walmart. It's just a bunch of folks together apart from the presence of Jesus in our midst. Jesus says, if you don't get this business of first love right, I will come to you and remove the lampstand. Your ability to be light on a hill, a city on a hill, and salt and light in the world will be taken away. My presence will be taken away. All of the blessings and benefits of the gospel will be removed away. My presence in your midst will depart if this business of first love not addressed. So the first fear was that perhaps there'd be some who would discount this sin and its gravity. And the second is not unlike it. The second concern I've had in my heart this week, and perhaps will continue to have for all of my ministry, is that because you're able to look at your life and assess certain deeds are being performed with regularity. In other words, your life by the standard of most looks pretty good that you would discount the need or the urgency of tender affections for Jesus Christ. But Jesus says this is a foundational issue. And when the cracks of lost love begin to appear in the foundation of your heart and collectively when they begin to appear in the foundation of any local church, there is an incremental drifting away. In part, because of the removal of the lampstand, and in part, what is driving the removal of the lampstand. How do you get from the altar to the attorney's office? Bit by bit by bit by bit. How do you get from a heart that's full of fire and enthusiasm for the message of the gospel to cold indifference, one's loss of their first love? Bit by bit by bit by bit, a callousness to the work of God's Holy Spirit, convicting and rebuking and calling you back to deep, heartfelt affection for the things of Jesus. Over the years, I can't tell you the number of couples that I've counseled with who, who say something along the lines of, I just don't, just don't feel for him or her the way I used to. Or the individual or the couple who comes in and says, I just fell out of love, or we just fell out of love. Now, I don't want to discount the significance of commitment to the marriage relationship. I feel fairly confident in saying to you this morning that there are days when my sweet, sweet wife wakes up and she doesn't even like me. Probably more of those days than what I'd be comfortable at being aware of, right? But it's a love and commitment that's deeper than what we would usually assign to our affections that creates in her persistence and faithfulness to me. And there are times in our life inevitably 
when it's a deeper love that goes beyond what we might typically assign to affection that creates in us persistence and commitment to Jesus, even in the absence of this gushing sense of emotional affection. Most of the time when couples say, I fell out of love or I don't feel the way I used to, that's a position that's far more informed by their incessant watching of Lifetime and Hallmark movie channel movies than it is anything biblical or grounded in reality. There are times when we must be propelled by a sense of commitment. And you cannot divorce from the verb love the critical role that commitment over the course of time plays. But neither should we divorce from love and commitment this sense in which we have deep and abiding affections for one another. I usually use my children to illustrate this principle, but there are times when I send my boys to clean their rooms. When they do it, because they know if they don't, I will whip them. And then there are times when I assign them to clean their room and they do it because they love and respect their father and they want to do the things that bring him honor. Now, I just want the room clean straight up. But it does feel nice to know that my boys are better motivated by a desire to honor their father than, than by just this generic sense of, of fear that compels them to do what they would otherwise much rather not do. There are going to be some seasons in your life when the flesh is winning the war against the spirit and the fear of the Lord is a compelling factor for you. But if you'll continue to run in the direction of God's command, making your investment of effort and energy there, you'll find that your heart will follow after the treasure of your investment. My counsel to couples who say such things has always been the same, drawing on the principle of Jesus' saying in the Sermon on the Mount, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Don't lay up treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break into steel, but in heaven. And it is, in its immediate context, a financial principle, but it's applicable in virtually all of life. People think that Kirk Cameron invented the love dare. Remember fireproof and all that stuff? He didn't invent that. It's just a book that says do nice things for your spouse until you feel the way about them you used to feel. And you hope that when you feel the way about them you used to feel, they'll feel the same way about you. He didn't invent that. Jesus did. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. The reason some of you are drifting from the Lord and have lost your first love is because you have made a lifestyle of making deposits in earthly accounts to the neglect of anything of eternal significance. And if you're going to have a warm-hearted, deep, and abiding affection for Jesus, you're going to have to begin to neglect those earthly accounts where moth and rust destroy and thieves break into steel and lay up your treasure in heaven, fixing your gaze, your focus, and all of your life on the things of Jesus. Jesus provides a prescription for our response to the absence of first love in verse number five. He says, remember then how far you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Remember. Do you remember when God saved you? Do, do, you, do you remember the events surrounding your salvation? How God laid hold of your heart in such a powerful way. And you knew in ways that were difficult to express. But oh boy, did you know it. And perhaps you knew it better than you'd ever known anything in your whole life. 
I, I, could go, I could go to Starkville, Mississippi and drive up that strip of North Jackson Street just inside the city limits, and I can still smell the smell, and I can visualize the, the sights, and I can virtually hear the sounds of where I was and what was unfolding when God got a hold of my heart. And for some of you, you can too. But think back even beyond that. I didn't grow up in a Christian home, Christian context, Christian family, didn't grow up in church. But I can look back across my pre-Christian life now and I can see the signpost that God in his faithful providence was providing all the while pointing me to Jesus. Even while I was chasing the things of this world, Jesus was there every step of the way pursuing me, coming after me. He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. Jesus said, remember, remember, remember. Take assessment. Don't just remember for the sake of remembering. Remember how far you've fallen. Evaluate your affection for Jesus in those early days against where you find yourself now. And if there's any disparity whatsoever, if there's any decrease or decline in your affection for Jesus, as you evaluate your feelings for him in this moment versus where you were in the beginning of your walk with Jesus, the only proper response is that we would repent and do the works we did at first. This passage is scary to me because here's a church with everything going for them, a rich tr tradition in history, having been touched and impacted in remarkable ways and they're doing good stuff all of the boxes are checked and yet there are cracks in the foundation that warrant the warning that jesus would remove their lampstand y'all come in real close churches don't go from being faithful witnesses to the gospel to flying rainbow pride flags out front overnight. It happens step by step and bit by bit. And the check in your spirit, the convicting work of Jesus in your heart may be just the preventative we need collectively as a body to keep us from ever going the wayward way until Jesus comes to cleanse and claim forever this church, his church, forevermore. It is a grave mistake that you would quench the work of God's spirit with regards to this issue. There may be some sins that have latched on like leeches to your heart, and you may bear with them surviving for a season. But this issue is so foundational, it won't take long when bit by bit, incrementally, step by step, the house will begin to tumble. Remember how far you've fallen. Repent, Jesus says, and do the works you did at first. He continues in verse 5, otherwise I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you do have this, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. It's like Jesus says, you got a lot of good things going for you, but there's this big issue. But before I go, I'll drop a word of encouragement. You also hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We'll take up the Nicolaitans later when we look at the church at Pergamum. We don't know a lot about the Nicolaitans. These are the only two references to this sect or group in the New Testament. But I think 
that because they're referenced in Ephesus and Pergamum, two cities that were central to the worship of Caesar as Lord, that the Nicolaitans likely represent a sectarian group trying to be a part of the church who were encouraging the church to soften on the business of Jesus as Lord and get on board with the business that Caesar is Lord. They sought to syncretize the worship of the emperor with the worship of Jesus, and this just cannot mix. This is one of the ways that, that, that the loss of one's first love enters in. Idols in your life tend toward mastery. You cannot hold on to the idols in your life and maintain a first love for Jesus. Idols want all of your heart. And Jesus will not bear with a secondary spot in the priorities of your life. Jesus Christ is Lord. Verse 7, the Bible says, Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in God's paradise. Notice that he says, I've written these things Listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. What Jesus says to Ephesus is good for the other six churches, and what Jesus says to the other six churches is good for the church at Ephesus. That's an important note with regards to our introductory commentary this morning. But notice further the way Jesus holds forth promise for this church. I will give the victor, the one who perseveres as a faithful witness, the overcomer, the one who does not quit, the one who bears enduringly the word of God and the testimony of Jesus over the duration of his life, regardless of how his life ends or what his future might be, I will give to the victor the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in God's paradise or in God's garden. The Bible bears perfect symmetry. The book of Genesis begins in the Garden of Eden, a good pure, sinless garden of Eden. And the first Adam enters in and he corrupts the garden of Eden by virtue of his sin. But in the book of Revelation, God enters in to the garden of God in the person of his son, Jesus, a crooked, perverse, unjust world. And he consecrates the garden of God by virtue of his righteousness. What the first Adam did in bringing the curse of sin, Jesus would reverse. In fact, he would reverse fully and finally and forever, sanctifying the garden of God, creating a dwelling place for all who would trust and believe in him. The invitation of the gospel is that we would find our place in the garden of God by faith in his son, Jesus Christ, in his body and behind his blood, believing that Jesus is God's only son who died in our place and rose again the third day, finding salvation in Christ, not our works, but in his finished work. Now, I said to you a moment ago that I feared that we might not all have eyes to see the severity of this sin and given its gravity. The great danger that it poses for us, this is a significant issue. Like we're at church, right? On Sunday morning. You're at church, past time for church to be out. And we were 15 minutes starting late and you stayed to still come to church. It's a good thing we have all those Mexican restaurants to eat at around town, right? Like... The, the fact that we're here has a tendency to register with us as an indication of God's work. 
But I want you to know that the very impulse that brings you here can come from one of two places. It can come from heaven or it can come from hell. It could be that the the heavenly impulse to gather together with the people of God to worship him in spirit and truth because he bled and died for you and he alone is worthy of worship and praise and you long to experience what God does by his spirit when the saints of God assemble together this way. That could be the impulse that brings you and bless God if it is. But it's also true that our feeling compelled to be here could be the hellish impulse of marking off the next box in the five-point register of our life, meriting the favor of God toward us in the absence of any heartfelt affection for Jesus. And woe unto us if it is the checking of boxes that compels us to come. And so I would just ask you this morning, between the altar and the attorney's office, Where do you find yourself along that spectrum? Can you take yourself and your mind back to that place, having beheld the face of Jesus for the first time, having regarded him as bearing greater value than anything that this world could afford, running headlong away from the cheap and petty and passing pleasures of this life into the full embrace of the very hands that bled and bear the scars in order that you might know forgiveness full and free or are you far nearer the attorney's office than what you'd otherwise admit I would warn you this morning that that little check subtle sense of conviction may only be subtle because you've been bearing with it for so long it's created calluses in your very heart and I would warn you against quenching the work of God's spirit And I would challenge you that you would break down your pride and yield to the work of God's Holy Spirit, even this morning. Maybe maybe you're here and, and you don't know Jesus. I want you to know that there is a place in the garden of God for you. You need only repent of your sin and believe on Jesus. And there is a place in the garden of God for you. But the pressing concern of our passage is for the church. For the believing community that has such a tendency to allow the tentacles of this world to get under their flesh, to take root, to overwhelm, and to consume, come away and unto Jesus. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, for its truth, and for the privilege of spending these moments together this morning. God, would you honor the reading and the preaching of your word by great outpouring of your Holy Spirit. Do within each of us what we cannot do ourselves. Touch and turn the hearts of men and women and boys and girls. Kindle in us a first love kind of affection for your son, Jesus. May you receive all the glory and praise from it. In Christ's name, amen.